0: Well, it's my privilege to join you here on this weekend. I have a son on the islands. He's at Kaneohe Bay. He's a Marine. I'm going to tell you a story about him in a moment. But to begin with, I would like to read Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verse 19 to the end of chapter 3. Philippians two, nineteen to the end of chapter 3. In this first session... I want to talk about a mature man. This is what scripture says. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. That I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because, as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by the Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more And so, somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us, then, who are mature, should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. This is the word of the Lord. Let me bow in prayer. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. For Jesus' sake, amen. So my son, who's now a Marine, closing in on his eighth year, when he was uh, about 17 and I was pressing him on occasion to act just a little more mature, He would say to me, Dad, growing old is inevitable. Growing up is a choice. And he did not mean to take that choice anytime soon. And, of course, that can have a good side to it and can have a bad side to it. The good side, of course, is you don't want to become an old fogey when you're 23. There are some people who just sound aged at the uh, age of 27 or so. But on the other hand, there are some people who at the age of 46 still are trying to act as if they're 17, and they just sound slightly stupid. No, most of us wouldn't be here if we did not have some sort of desire to be mature Christian men. So what does that look like? Did you notice? Chapter 3, verse 15. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. So what is Paul talking about when he says, those of us who are mature should take such a view of things. What is this such a view? Well, transparently from the context, the such a view is what he's just unpacked. It's the entire context of the flow of his argument. So what should we learn? What should we focus on if we wish to be mature Christian men? Number one, study the example of Timothy. Chapter 2, verses 19 to 24, study the example of Timothy. He was transparently a remarkable young man. Paul wants to send Timothy to the Philippians shortly. And then he says this of him, verse 20, I have no one else like him. How would you like that set of you? For a similar reason, I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. In other words, even within the Church of Christ, it is easy enough for all of us—not only clergy, but men and women in the church. It is so easy for all of us in our interactions somehow to be more worried about what the others think of us than what we think of them. We have our conversations and, oh, we're subtle enough that our games of one-upmanship are carefully nuanced, but they're still present, aren't they? And if somebody tells a story, we are scrambling in our minds to think of a better story that can up it. And if somebody tells a story that is just too over the top in spirituality and maturity and so on, we we may actually feel tempted to cut them down just a wee bit, the way the Aussies do, you know, cut down the tall poppy. Because we're not so concerned for the good of others as we are for our own public persona, And this is common enough, even in the church, that Paul can say of Timothy, I don't have anyone like him, who is so transparently committed for the concern of others. He's so transparently committed to others' good. And then in particular, he is committed to the interests of Christ. For you know that Timothy has proved himself because... As a son with his father, he has served with me in the gospel. So he's had these gospel interests. Now go back and reread verse 21. For everyone works out their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So not only does he have a genuine concern for the welfare of others, verse 20, in particular, he's constantly panting after the interests of Christ. What what does that mean then in, in, in real life? This is an uncommon virtue to be passionate for the good of others, especially for the glory of Christ. Because, because truth be told, we go through life fearing what people will think of us. I'm reminded of another passage in Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verses, uh, chapter uh, 12 verses one to 10 where Paul is in the embarrassing position of having to, having to defend himself against false teachers who are claiming that they have so many strengths. They're very spiritual. They've had a lot of visions recently. They, 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 they've got an inside track with God. And there's Paul. All he can talk about is, is that Damascus Road experience a couple of decades back. What has he got to show for his spirituality recently? And so he, he's got to defend himself, but he's embarrassed to do so. If he if he defends himself and boasts about his experiences, then he's descending to their level, and he doesn't want to do that. But if he doesn't actually give his credentials, then he's going to lose this church. So he's caught between the, the, the two goals of of, of of defending himself so as to retain his credibility in front of this church, yet at the same time not stooping to the level of this endless boasting and one-upmanship. So he says, well, I'll... I'll tell you about a man I know, a man in Christ. I I knew him about 14 years ago. He's actually talking about himself. He just won't admit it quite yet. This man in Christ, well, he was caught up into the third heaven. The Jews commonly spoke of three heavens. The first was the heaven through which the birds fly, what we mean by the atmosphere. And the second heaven is, is what we mean by the perceived universe, stars, planets, that sort of thing. And the third heaven is the abode of God. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, I don't know. But he was caught up to the very presence of God, the abode of God. And, and he, he was caught up actually to paradise. Jews sometimes spoke of seven paradises. But when they spoke of three, the first paradise was the paradise of Eden before there was any sin. The last paradise is the paradise of the new heaven and the new earth. And between the two is the hidden paradise. That is one that we don't readily perceive, but it's where God is. For wherever God is, there is paradise. So it's another way of saying he was caught up to the very presence of God. And there he saw things that cannot be uttered, spectacular things, wonderful things, things that he was forbidden to talk about. Now he says, I'll I'll boast about a man like that, but I won't boast about me except my weakness. But but if I did boast about him, that is, as if that man were I, I'd be telling the truth. That's as close as he gets uh, to admitting that he's talking about himself. And then he adds this, this is spectacular. But I refuse to do so lest people should think more of me than that which is based on what I do or say. Do you hear that? We go through life fearing people will think too little of us. Paul goes through life fearing people will think too much. And if he must be assessed, let him be assessed... by by what takes place in the public arena, what he says and what he does, not by claimed revelations that nobody can test out. And then he goes further yet and says, in fact, if I've got to boast, I'll boast about my weaknesses because I have learned that when I am weak, then I am strong. That is because Christ comes and and works through me in the midst of my weaknesses. So I'll, I'll, I'll boast about those kinds of things. Now, this is the mark of someone who is not so interested in promoting self all the time, we men have egos that easily surface in one form or another of one-upmanship and triumphalism. But mature men are far more concerned to build up others than to have themselves stroked. They look for the interests of others. And those interests are measured first and foremost by gospel concerns. That is to look for the interests of Christ in the church. They're looking constantly for what will build up the body of Christ. Not just for how good they'll feel because others tell them now and then that they're wonderful. So if you want to be mature, study the example of Timothy. Second, study the example of Epaphroditus, 2.25 to 30. Now, the historical context here suggests that he risked his life. There's no indication that this was persecution or violence. It appears that the Philippians had wanted to send some physical support, some money or the like, to help Paul in his ministry. And Epaphroditus was the messenger who carried some of this money or these goods, whatever it was. The text does not lay it out. And somewhere along the line, Epaphroditus became ill almost to the point of death. After all, travel is never easy, but in those days it was a lot worse and a lot more dangerous. If you move from Philippi, which is a a, a good-sized, comfortable town in the first century... And then you move down the Aegean and join up Paul in in Corinth or someplace like that. Then you're down on the coast. You're in more swampy territory. All through the region at the time, there were malarial swamps and so forth. Who knows what he suffered? We have no idea. But he was willing to risk all of this. And in fact, he was at the point of death. And now we're told about Epaphroditus that Paul wants to send him back so that the Philippians wouldn't worry too much about him. In other words, there's a certain kind of psychological context as well as an historical context. What is fascinating about Epaphroditus is not that he's moaning and saying, you know, you know, this was a tough assignment and, 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 and I was really quite ill. I was almost at the point of death. No, he's distressed because you heard he was ill. He's more concerned about their worrying about his illness than he is about his illness. Now, we don't face similar diseases in exactly the same way, although I've tried once or twice to come close. I uh, was in East Africa a number of years ago in Nairobi, and um, some, some Christians whom I had trained up to MTH level, THM level in, in Chicago were there and wanted me to go and visit grandparents up in the banana plantation country, about 8,500 feet, So they drove me up there. The wife was Kikuyu, the husband was Kamba. The Kikuyu had first started getting converted about 1910, 1911, and her grandparents were amongst those who were the first Kikuyu converted under missionaries up in the highlands in 1911, and they were still alive. And the only common language, one spouse spoke Kikuyu, the other spoke Kamba. The trade language was Swahili, and then I spoke English. I was the odd one out. Then the next generation hadn't got converted, and then there was the generation of my students, and then their kids were there too. There were four generations. And meanwhile, the in-between generation had got converted. They were all there. And, and through Swahili, translated for me, I was asking questions about the background. I wanted to know their experiences of, in, in Christ during the East African Revival, as it's called. And then the Mau Mau Rebellion, when there was terrible violence and, and, and how the church had survived during that time and, and so forth. The stories went on, story after story after story. they had seen it all. And then toward the end of the afternoon, they brought out some tea and fruit well, you know, we Westerners with weak student stomachs, we have to be careful what we eat. Bananas are safe. You know, you take off the outside and then the inside you can eat and it's, it's safe. But tea, I've traveled enough to know that if you boil your water for tea, you're okay at sea level. But if you're at 8,500 feet, because water boils at a much lower temperature at that altitude, you've got to boil it for 20 minutes. And that water came back awfully fast. That tea came back really quickly. And I thought to myself, do I drink this? Do I not? Ah, sure, go ahead, Don. So I drank it. 48 hours later, I had typhoid. I won't tell you the story, that what came next. It, it, it's pretty messy. But, but, but you know, there are drugs today. There are drugs today. But you know, it made me think. Between 1880 and 1910, British missionaries going out to the band of of Africa, the central band across Africa, they they automatically lost to disease one-third of all the missionaries they sent in the first year. SIM required that you bring your coffin with you. You had to go out single and survive a year before you could bring out the woman that you wanted to be your spouse. Do, do, Do you see? Doubtless, all kinds of people thought they were nuts. They were risking their lives. I wasn't really risking my lives. I mean, the real danger was once I got the disease, they wanted to take me to the local government hospital where I knew they didn't have an autoclave or use a, a, a disposable needles. I usually when I'm in Africa, I, I bring my own needles with me, but I hadn't done that time. Done so that time. I was only going to be there for three weeks, and I, there's no way I'd go to that hospital. I'd rather fight typhoid than fight AIDS. So as a result, um, they transported me, by truck, uh, several miles, 45 minutes worth, to a hospital run by the Catholic Sisters of Charity from from Italy. But, but, you know, such help is available. And there I got some decent drugs, and and they had disposable needles, and, and obviously the typhoid didn't get me. But that wasn't much of a risk compared to what missionaries did a bare hundred years ago. And if I had died from that, in all fairness, it wasn't from persecution. And yet it was triggered by the fact that I was trying to serve in Africa. And there are some things that we do like that where we want to serve, where we push a little harder or we take some risks, we go a little farther. And we do so gladly for Christ's sake. And then we will also be concerned lest we discourage others by the things that we contract. I mean, pretty soon I was much more worried about what my wife was thinking at home and what the church was thinking back in Cambridge, England, from from which at that time I sprang. Very mild compared to the sort of thing that they had here where there were no sulfa drugs, no quinine, and then none of the later miracle drugs. The principle, though, is pretty clear. Paul finds it utterly commendable if Christians take risks for the gospel. Now, in this case, it was risk of disease, the dangers of travel in the ancient world in order to bring support for Paul and his ministry. Most of our risks are not going to be of that order. But, you know, some of us have tried to put in some time even in short-term missions. In a different culture where at least we're exposed to some things, we take risks sometimes in our work and employment when we start bearing witness when the atmosphere is hostile. We take risks sometimes when we refuse the next promotion because we want more time with our family and in service in the local church. We take risks when we prioritize the gospel and living in the light of eternity rather than simply following the slippery slope to the top of the political or organizational heap. And Paul commends that because it's taking the gospel seriously. It is refusing to think of the gospel and of the church of Jesus Christ as a kind of avocation that we take on on Sunday morning at 11 o'clock for an hour or two before we forget it entirely with the rest of our lives. There is a certain kind of risk-taking that may turn out not to be too serious or it may turn out to be quite serious, but we undertake it cheerfully because of the value of the gospel. So do you want to be mature? Study Epaphroditus. Then, third, study the example of Paul. All of chapter 3. Here there are two negatives displayed and three positives. Two negatives and three positives. So let's begin with the negatives. Beware of merely external displays of spirituality. Beware of merely external displays of spirituality. Chapter 3, verses 1 to the first part of verse 4. Now, again, the historical context is important. When Paul went and preached the gospel in some community, it wasn't long before traditionalist Jews would come along behind him and say, now, we too believe in Jesus the Messiah. We believe that he died on the cross. We believe that you have to put your faith in him. But, you know, really to accept the Jewish Messiah, you must also be a Jew. And that means being circumcised and coming under the law of Moses with all of its kosher demands and so on, and, 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 and showing yourself to be a true blue Jew as you follow Christ. And as Paul looks at this, he says, no, 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 those are, at the end of the day, external things. Even the Old Testament itself distinguishes between circumcision of the flesh and circumcision of the heart. What does it actually point to? Is it, is it merely conformity to the ritual, observing the right food laws and observing the right uh, sacrificial statutes and uh, observing the right, uh, the, the, the right uh, um, uh, marks of covenantal obedience, such as circumcision? Is that what proves you to be a true believer? In our terms, is it going to church, even reading your Bible, participating in a Sunday school course? Talking the talk. Participating in a men's Bible study. The truth of the matter is you can do all of those things and actually know very little of grace. That's the truth. And it's even worse. It's possible, even though all of those things are good things, it's possible, it's possible to begin to hold those things up as the very evidence of your spirituality. As if the external marks themselves... Are sufficient warrant for concluding that somebody genuinely is full of gospel grace. Let me come at it another way. When we start asking, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is news. That's what it is. It's good news but it's good news with a particular content. It's good news about what God has done in Christ Jesus, supremely in the cross and the resurrection, to reconcile men and women to himself now and bring them to an utterly transformed universe, the new heaven and the new earth, in due course. But it's good news. So the gospel has many different dimensions. It has It has the dimension of of being declared right before God, hence what justification is. We'll come to that one in a minute. But but the gospel also talks about the good news of what God does to actually transform people, to actually change them by new birth. In other words, the gospel does not merely change our status before God. That's justification, whereby, whereby God declares us to be just on the basis of what Christ has done. That's good news. But it's not just a status thing. You could have your status right before God and and, and that would not in itself change your life. So the gospel also includes the good news of what happens by the Spirit's power to renew us, to regenerate us. And, and, and moreover, it's not just an individualistic thing. Sin and, and ungodliness are bound up with bad social dynamics too. You hate people or you're jealous of them or the like. Whereas, whereas in the church of the living God, there are men and women who are transformed so that all of their social dynamics change too. And it's not just for this life. It's ultimately for the life to come. Do You see, the good news that God brings to us touches us not only in our relationship with God, but in the power of transformed living, in our social dynamics, and ultimately in resurrection existence. It's all secured by Christ and his death and resurrection. And over against that, you're going to set up some ritual? At different times in church history, people have emphasized one of these strands or another. At the time of the Reformation, what people stressed more than any other of these strands was justification, to be declared just before God on the basis of what Christ has done. He bears our sin. We gain his righteousness. His righteousness is calculated as ours. Our sin is calculated as his. And he, he cancels it. He pays for it. But you know, at the time of the evangelical awakening, the Great Awakening, as it's called in the US, then there was a slightly different emphasis. All that I've said about justification was still preached by Whitfield, for example. Yet at the same time, he kept preaching, You must be born again. It is estimated that he preached from John 3, You must be born again, something close to 3,000 times. Of course, he was traveling from town to town, both in New England. And in old England, he crossed the Atlantic 13 times by sail. And he might visit three different villages in a day. And so over the years, he preached, you must be born again, you must be born again, something like 3,000 times. And eventually, somebody asked him, Mr. Whitfield, why, why do you keep preaching again and again and again? You must be born again, you must be born again, you must be born again. Because, he says, you must be born again, <laughs> which is a, a, simply a way of getting at the point that that the gospel is the power of God to salvation. It's not just a legal status thing; it is a transformative thing. Do you see? That's the kind of thing that the apostle is presupposing here. It's not just a legal status thing or getting your ritual right or 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 or, or getting your your um, uh, public meetings are right or, or or getting your baptism right. What what is what is at it issue is deeper than that. And mere external conformity doesn't finally cut it. If you want to be mature, in other words, beware of merely external displays of spirituality. Number two, the second negative thing. Beware of spiritual self-confidence. Verses 4b to 6. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh... I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, so a true covenant child of Israel. Of the people of Israel, he was one of the covenant members. Of the tribe of Benjamin, one of only two tribes that did not rebel against the Davidic throne. A Hebrew of the Hebrews probably meant that he learned the language and the culture in the home as well as learning the Greco-Roman culture in Tarsus where he grew up. In regard to the law, a Pharisee brought up in a Pharisaic home, which was strict and disciplined. As for zeal as a Jew, wow, he persecuted the church, for goodness sake. You can't get much more zealous than that. And as for righteousness based on the law, with full confidence in formal conformity to the law, and if there was a sin, well, then they had the sacrificial system. That's what it was there for. As far as he was concerned, he was in. He was faultless. And then he goes on to say that it all didn't count. Now, we don't boast about the same things today because most of us, for a start, aren't Jews. So we can't go around saying, you know, I'm a Benjamite myself. Those things don't strike us quite the same way. But some of us go around thinking society is going to hell in a tea basket. I mean, it's, it's, it's terrible. At least I don't do that. I'm, I'm not sleeping around. I go to church. I read my bible. I attend the means of grace. I examine myself before holy communion. I thank you God that I am not as other men are. Whoops. What starts off as genuine statement of gracious privilege before God, so easily slides over into a kind of self-confidence that is frighteningly ugly. It reminds us of the parable Jesus tells in Luke 18 of two men who go up to the temple to pray. One's a Pharisee. And, and he can honestly say, I thank you, God, that I am not as other men are. I mean, look at this society. It's going to hell. I, I'm, I'm not like uh, the hookers on the street and I'm I, I'm not one of these undisciplined Romans who, who are drunk half the time, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm not even like this wretched tax collector over there, compromised politically and morally and ethically. I'm, I'm, I'm not like that. And I thank you, God. I mean, there's formally even recognition of God's grace behind it. And yet what Jesus says about this man is that he didn't go home justified. The one who went home justified... Was the one who didn't even have the self confidence to lift his eyes heavenward, but beat his breast and cried, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. For the nature of grace is that it responds to need, the nature of holiness in this fallen, broken world order, is that the closer we get to the unlimited holiness of God, the more we see our need for grace. The fact of the matter is is that if we are sort of ordinary, middle-class, comfortable, faithful American churchgoers... It is so easy to be mired in a certain kind of self-righteousness, a certain kind of self-confidence. I'm a Christian. I've trusted Jesus. I go to church. I'm not like the bad guys in our society. I don't cheat on my income tax. I play fair with my employers. I don't blow my cool all the time. Whatever. But at the same time, in all of that, there is not a sort of growing awareness of our dependence on God and a need for grace. All the things that Paul said about himself here were true. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was an Israelite. He had been circumcised. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. He had been zealous. But in fact, all these things made him just a bit stuck on himself. And it wasn't until he came to the place where he could count them all but rubbish compared with the excellencies of Christ that he really began to head in another direction. Beware of the spirit of, of spiritual self-confidence. This is tied to a bigger problem, I think, in our culture. There are many strands of the Western Church at the moment. That don't like to talk too much about sin very explicitly. So, when we present Christ, we, we present Christ as the one who gives you meaningfulness in your life and joy and peace. Christ gives you a certain sense of identity. He, he, he fills the God shaped vacuum in your heart that St. Augustine talks about. That, that, that's what he does. So turn to Jesus and find genuine fulfillment and genuine transparent joy. Isn't that the way the gospel is quite regularly presented? Then when people make decisions, when Christ is thus presented, deep down they're actually trying Jesus out. They they don't feel saved from something. They feel as if they're getting a little extra, a little benefit. Come to Jesus and have the abundant life. Who wouldn't want an abundant life? What do you want instead? A starched, miserly life? Of course people want an abundant life. But what does abundant life mean? How often does that expression show up in the Bible? In fact, it only shows up in one place, in John chapter 10, where it's an extended metaphor about sheep. For a sheep, abundant life is having a lot of grass. Are you going to tell a whole lot of students at the University of Hawaii that what they need is a lot more grass? I don't, I don't think so. Is it, what does abundant life actually, actually mean? Do, 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 do you see? More sex? Sense of fulfillment? Better job? Higher pay? And so there is no sense of being rescued by God. There is no sense of, of owing God. There is no sense of relief, which is one of the reasons why it is estimated that in North America... About 90% of those who make first-time confessions of faith show by what happens later that their professions of faith are spurious. 90%. Whereas, by contrast, if people say, if people see that they really are lost, that is, that they are guilty before God, that, that, that they have offended God, that God stands against them not only in love, but he stands over against them in wrath, that they, they must give an account. And, and they deserve judgment. They deserve help. They actually believe that. And then the gospel says to them, but there is a way out, and this way out has been secured by God himself in sending his own son to bear our sin in his own body on the tree. Now, when people close with Christ in that framework, then there is a sense of relief and gratitude because they have been saved from something real. And and then if they go through a, a bad patch, life turns out not to be full of joy and pleasure and and, and titillating experiences and delight and happy songs. and, 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 and In fact, sometimes it leads you next to the cancer or it leads you next into suffering or opposition at work. Sometimes the gospel leads you into some really difficult times. It doesn't matter because, don't you see, you've been saved from the wrath to come. That picture teaches you how glorious the gospel really is. It's worth living and dying for. It's not a choice that you're experimenting with for a little while to see if it actually makes your life more satisfied. It's, It's this glorious deliverance secured by Christ on the cross. So one of the things we need, therefore, is a form of Christianity that is not merely external and that does as much as it can to take away our self-confidence. If we fail to do that, we will not grow up in Christ. In older times, this is the way the law was regularly preached. Start with the Ten Commandments. Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever told a lie? That's breaking one of the commandments. shall not bear false witness. Has anybody here never told a lie? So you're a liar. Oh, no, I wouldn't say that. I, I, you know, I tell some lies, but I, I, I'm not a liar. Well, isn't a liar someone who tells lies? We're, we're not suggesting that you have to tell only lies. But if you tell some lies, aren't you a liar? Well, yeah, okay, I guess I'm a liar. Do you steal? Oh, no. Oh, no, I, I wouldn't steal. Wait, wait a minute, you just told me you're a liar, so why should I believe you? Do you cheat on your income tax? Do you steal there? Hmm? Or steal at work because, because you don't put in an honest day's work for an honest day's pay? Hmm? Do you steal from the time you, you ought to give to your children and your, your, your spouse? Hmm? Do you steal? So, now you're a liar and you're a thief. Do you ever take the Lord's name in vain? When you really, really do blow it or just casually cuss now and then? Do, do, do you? Or are you so cleaned up that you never, ever, ever... When things are really, really, really going badly, it's a really bad day. And then on top of that, you're pounding in a nail and you smash your thumb. And, and and ordinarily, it would never slip out, but in this case, in this case, it's just, it's just foul. So you're a liar and a thief and a blasphemer. How about adultery and fornication? No, no, no. I've been faithful to my wife all my life. Yeah, but... Morally speaking, Jesus insists that if, um, if you look after a woman to lust after her, you've already committed adultery in, 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 in your heart. So is anybody here utterly free of adultery? Hmm? So now you're a blaspheming, lying, fornicating thief. Do you love God with heart and soul and mind and strength? I mean, the first commandment says that you're to have no other gods before... And do, you, do you see what I mean? You keep pushing on all of these things. What then does the Bible say happens to people who are lying, blaspheming, fornicating, idolatrous thieves? And this is just the small edge of, 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 of the dark side of life. Wesley, John Wesley who on this point was really shaped by the Puritans, he was asked how he preaches the gospel when he goes to any new place, right up on his horse and hitting another little village. And what does he do when he goes to a new place to start preaching the gospel? He says, when I first come to a new place, I begin with a general declaration of the love of God. And then he says, I preach the law. I preach the law so that men and women may know that they are lost, that they have offended God that they stand under his righteous judgment. And then he says, I preach more law. And pretty soon he says, I see that there may be some people in the congregation who who are beginning to weep for their sins and and to despair of their situation before God. So he says, I preach more law. Pretty soon there are quite a lot of people who are crying out to God. And then he says, I, I quote, I admix a little grace. That's what Wesley says. And, and only when virtually the whole congregation is beginning to cry out to God, Lord, what shall we do? What shall we do? Then do I preach grace freely and widely and broadly so that men may see what, what Christ has achieved on the cross. And then he adds, quickly do I admix law, lest men should presume. Now, I'm not suggesting we should do it exactly like that. I mean, There, there are some problems with, with what he's saying. But it's very, very different from the way the gospel is regularly presented today, where people don't see the need. You cannot get an accurate representation and understanding of the gospel if you don't get an accurate representation and understanding of the problem that the gospel addresses. You either have to have clarity on both or you have clarity on neither If you do not see what the problem of sin really is, you will not see what the cross really addresses. And if you see truly what the cross really addresses, it will only be because you see what sin is. And over against all of that is merely an external religion that plays by the rules and wonders if you've been properly baptized and is full of self-righteous hypocrites. If Christians are going to be mature... They will beware of merely external piety and they will beware of self-confidence. Now, positively, I think we probably had enough negative things for one evening. Positively, focus then on what the cross achieves, verses 7 to 9. Focus on what the cross achieves. Now, of course, this passage does not say everything the cross achieves. That would take us many, many, many passages even to have a quiet introduction. But what is said here is nevertheless startlingly bold. But whatever gains, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything, all of his advantages, all of his self righteousness, all of his religious formalism, a loss because of their surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage, listen, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. That is to say, we do not go through life trying so hard to be good and being reasonably self-disciplined that eventually we come before God and we say, well, God, I did try pretty hard. Won't you accept me? Nobody tried harder than Paul. And all of his trying hard, he now dismisses as rubbish, garbage. Because what he wants is not the righteousness that he has achieved himself, he says, but the righteousness that has come from Christ, that is received by faith in Christ. Christ's righteousness reckoned to us as he takes our guilt and cancels it, turns aside God's righteous wrath and and gives us his righteousness. So that when Christ looks at me, he sees Christ's righteousness, not Don Carson's righteousness. If he sees Don's Carson's righteousness, all he, all he sees is filthy rags. But if he looks at Don Carson and sees Christ, a righteousness received by faith, everything has changed. So we keep focusing on the cross and all that is achieved. I've sometimes used this as an illustration. Picture two Jewish men by the remarkable names of Smith and Jones. At the time of the Exodus, it's the night before Passover, the first Passover. And Mr. Smith says to Mr. Jones, um, I, I see that you're pointing to somebody here. Is one of you Jones and one of you Smith? Is that right? So here are two <laughs> sparkling examples. We're <laughs> grinning from ear to ear, you know. So, so, so Smith and Jones. Now, I don't remember now which is which. So, if I'm a one of you, you know, then you can duke it out afterwards yourself. So, Smith and Jones. Now, Mr. Smith says to Mr. Jones, uh, "Are you ready for, for 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 Passover?" "Oh yes, of course," Mr. Jones says. "I, we've, we've slaughtered the lamb, and and." And we're going to eat it all, as we've been told to do. I've already sprinkled the blood from the lamb on the two doorposts and on the lintel. I'm I'm ready. We're out of here tonight. Mr. Smith says, oh, well, I've done it too, but... But on the other hand, I've got to admit, I'm, I'm worried. I mean, according to Moses, the angel of death is coming through the land, and people are going to lose their firstborn, you know? Firstborn cattle, firstborn sons. Yeah, I, I know I've got 14 kids, but still, I love my David. He's my firstborn. I'd, I'd, hate, I'd really hate to lose him. And Mr. Jones says, what are you worried about? You followed the instructions. You, you've put the designated blood on the two doorposts and on the lintel, haven't you? Yes, yes, of course I've done that. Then what are you worried about? Don't 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 you think that God will tell the truth? Well, yes, yes. I'm not gonna gonna question God, but on the other hand, just think what's happened the last little while. A lot of frogs, (laughs) a lot of lice. The Nile River turning to blood, for goodness sake, you know? And occasionally darkness on the face of the land. Some terrible catastrophes. Some people view them as natural disasters. But, but we know these things have come from God. They're pretty awful. God, God is displaying his wrath and judgment. And sometimes it's been over the whole land, over our part, as well as over the Egyptians' part. It's pretty frightening stuff. And now God talks about losing your firstborn son. Mr. Jones says, I don't know what you're worried about. God, God, God has promised that if you sprinkle the blood of the Passover lamb and, and, and on your doorpost and on your lintel, you'll be safe. That night, the angel of destruction passed through the land. Who lost his firstborn son, Smith or Jones? And the answer, of course, is Neither. Because the salvation, the Passover, the passing over of destruction, did not turn on the intensity of the faith of either man, but on the object of the faith of either man, namely on the very promises of God. And in the Christian way, do you see... There comes to be confidence before God, genuine confidence before God, that we will be acceptable before him on the last day, not because we've tried harder, not because we've gone to more men's conventions, not because we've read our Bible more faithfully, but because we've trusted Christ. And Christ has promised us his righteousness when we receive that righteousness by faith. And it is a struggle to walk that way. It is a struggle to walk genuinely by faith. But here's the first positive incitement. Focus on what the cross achieves. Do you want to be mature? Focus on what the cross achieves. Number two, focus on increasing likeness to Christ. Focus on increasing conformity to Christ. Verses 10 to 14. I want to know Christ, Paul writes. And you might well say, wait a minute, I thought you already knew Christ. Yes, but Paul can still speak of knowing Christ better. I I want to know Christ. This is after Paul has been an apostle for about 20 years. I I I want to know Christ. It might even be longer, depending on when Philippians was written. It might even be 30 years. And he's still saying, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. You see, the danger of the last point that I made where we really do trust Christ and nothing more, is that for some of us, it leads us to sort of back off and say, well, if Christ has done it all, then I don't, I don't have to push anymore. I mean, I, 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 I can just coast. I'm, I'm accepted before God because of what Christ has done. But this passage presents a slightly different picture. Paul is still pantingly saying, I want to know Christ better. And in particular, I want to know two things. Number one, he says, I want to know the power of his resurrection. And number two, I want to know participation in his sufferings. We sometimes say fellowship in his sufferings, but that's so spookily sentimental, it doesn't mean much. I want to participate in his sufferings. That's what the text means. What does this mean? To know the power of Christ's resurrection drives you to looking all of those New Testament passages up that speak of the power of God in us because of the resurrection. Let me just mention one passage. It's in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, where Paul prays certain prayers for the, Corinthians, for the Ephesians. He says, I pray, he says, that you may have power, that you may have power, for two things. I'll just mention the second one for want of time. I pray that you may have power together with all the saints to grasp how long and wide and high and deep is the love of God in Christ Jesus and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Now, now did you hear that? That's not a prayer that we may love God more. That's a good prayer, but it's not that prayer. It's a, love, it's a prayer for power that we might have the power to grasp his love for us. Most of us are aware that all things being equal—and they never are—but all things being equal, unless children grow up in a home where there is a lot of disciplined love, they grow up immature, don't they? They grow up unable to give or receive love. They grow up stulted. They grow up twisted. They—they they grow up deformed. I have a colleague at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School where I teach. He and his wife have been foster parents now for 30 kids over the years, sometimes for a few days, sometimes for many years, and eventually they adopted the last one, a child uh, who was a crack cocaine baby, and they, they adopted her as their daughter and so forth. On one occasion, they adopted twin—they they, they looked after twin boys. They, they had already had their quota, but, but the agency called and said, look, we've got twin boys. They're about uh, three years old, three and a half. We just need you to look after them for six weeks, then we'll have them placed elsewhere. Well, we—they hemmed and hawed. They already had enough kids, but but they took them. Six weeks, we can manage that. They ended up having them for three years. They discovered that those boys—this was their seventh home. When Perry went in to see them in bed the first night, he went in and found that their pillows were sopping wet from tears. They were just crying their eyes out without making a sound. And when they tracked back and found out more about them, they'd, they discovered that when they had cried in the last two homes, they just were roundly, roundly beaten again and again and again and again. When the boys were checked out, psychologically, they were deemed irremediably damaged so that they would never lead normal lives. Two and a half years later, they were adopted by a Christian family. They were judged in the normal range of emotional behavior. Because you see, they had been placed in a home where there was overflowering disciplined love. Because you and I know that, all things being equal, children do not grow up to emotional maturity unless they're in a home with disciplined love. We know that. All you have to do is read the newspapers. And there is a sense in which in the spiritual arena as well, not because God is withholding his love, but because we hide from it. If we are to grow up to full maturity, we must grow in our grasp of his love. It is far more important that we grow in our grasp of his love than that we merely screw up our hearts to increase in our love. In fact, the best way of growing in our love for him is precisely to grow in our grasp of the limitless dimensions of his love. That you may have power together with all the saints to grasp how long and wide and high and deep is the love of God in Christ Jesus. And then Paul uses paradox. To know this love that surpasses knowledge. To what end? That you may be filled with all the measure of the fullness of God. That's a Pauline locution for saying so that you might be truly, genuinely mature. And it takes power to come to grips with that. That you might have power for that to be the case. So the question really becomes, when was the last time you prayed for that? For yourself, your family, your church, the missionaries you support. Do, 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 do you see If our praying is to be reformed by the word of God, if we want to see God's resurrection power at work within us, then shouldn't we be praying for that resurrection power to operate in us in exactly the same way that Paul wants the resurrection power to work in Christians of his day? So Paul wants resurrection power, not so that he can be thought powerful. Sometimes we ask for power so that we can be real heroes and leaders of the congregation. That's not what Paul is asking for. Power so that he can be conformed to Christ. Power so that the word really speaks to him. Power so that he'll be holy. Power so that he's conformed increasingly to Christ. Power that he may know Christ. Because Christianity is, though never less than creedal, it's more than creedal. It is not merely a point of getting your doctrine right, however important it is to get doctrine right. It is a powerful thing that transforms men and women. And then the second thing he says, in this regard, is that I may know him and participation in his sufferings. That strikes us as so weird in the West. But when I talk to Christians in the Middle East, they understand what it means. When I talk to Christians in certain parts of China, they know what it means. They actually want to participate in Christ's sufferings. Have you ever reflected on that verse in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, where the apostles first get beaten up, and the text says they rejoice because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name? It was a long time before I think I began to understand that passage. I could see what the word said, but how was this working out in their heads? I think it went something like this. The night that he was betrayed... The Lord Jesus told them, as he had told them earlier on in his discipling of them, he told them that if people reject me, they'll reject you. If people accept me, they'll accept you. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Did you know? A slave is not above his master. So so you've got to expect some tough times. That's what Jesus told. Reread the last half of John 15. So then Jesus dies, rises again, appears before them on a variety of occasions. Returns to heaven, the Holy Spirit falls, and everything is spectacular. People are getting converted by the thousands, and by the power of God. By the power of God, the church is in very good odor, and 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 some people are so enamored by what God is doing in the early weeks of the church that some people just just want to get under Peter's shadow. I mean, th- 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 even that would be a privilege. And 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 okay, they're warned once in a while by the Sanhedrin, but nothing bad is going on. And you can imagine the apostles starting to talk to one another about this. Uh, Nathaniel, uh, didn't Jesus say something about persecution? Yeah, John says, uh, he really did. I remember pretty well when my head was on Jesus' breast, you know, he, he, he spoke some pretty tough things that night and, 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 and I remember them very well. And, uh, and, and Peter says, yeah, but then how come we're not facing any of those things? At the moment, we're, we're just seeing unction and power and fruit absolutely everywhere. And they're beginning to get a little worried. Did you know Jesus had promised that there'd be tough times? All they're seeing instead is revival, more popularity, numbers, conversions, growth. And then finally, it breaks out, and they're beaten up good and proper. And the apostles say, yes, thank you, Jesus. Did you see? They rejoice because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. Now we're in Philippians 3. Turn back to Philippians one twenty-nine. Already in Philippians one twenty-nine, the apostle Paul writes to the Philippians and says, to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on his name, but also to suffer for his sake. So just as God has granted in Christ as a gracious gift, faith, it's been granted to you to believe in his name, so he's also granted to you to suffer for Jesus' sake. And now Paul says, well, granted that that's amongst the gifts that Christ doles out, then I long to participate in his sufferings. Now don't misunderstand, this is not a kind of masochism that goes through life saying, go ahead, hit my cheek so I can give you the other one. It's it's, it's, it's not that kind of ugly self-pitying kind of thing. It's not that. But there is a kind of dignity, a kind of honor in being reproached for Jesus' sake. Some of us never ever know what the reproach of Christ looks like because we never bear witness to him. You can be at work for 20 years and nobody knows you're a Christian. Well, no wonder you've never suffered for Jesus. Just open your trap once in a while. Start talking about the gospel. Yeah, you'll get some abuse. And when you get it, suppose when you get it, suppose when somebody looks down their nose at you in a condescending way, suppose that somebody really tears a strip off you for your narrow-minded, right-winged, bigoted intolerance because you think that Jesus is the only way to God, supposing you face some of that and you say, thank you, Jesus. I rejoice because I'm counted worthy to suffer for the name. Doesn't that change absolutely everything? Or will instead you be intimidated by every passing fancy of a secular world? That's what Paul is saying here. I want to know him and to know him better I must on the one hand know more of the power of Christ to transform me and I must also participate in, 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 in the fellowship of his sufferings. I, I, that, that, that's part of the deal. If we suffer with him we will reign with him. That that too has been given to us as, as a gracious gift from God. Do you want to be mature? Focus in increasing likeness to Christ. Last, quickest, Focus on eternity. Verses 17 to 21. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Look around for mature Christians and act like them. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame. They're far more interested in porn than in Jesus. They're interested in where all the best restaurants are than in Jesus. They're interested in endless hedonism than in Jesus. They're more interested in surfing than in Jesus. None of which things are bad. Well, the porn accepted. But sex itself is not bad within the constraints of Scripture. But all of these things can so displace an eternal perspective that eventually we forget the way Paul concludes. Listen, he says, Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly body so that we will be like his glorious body. I know that when we get old enough and suffer enough, resurrection bodies begin to look good. My wife is a cancer survivor. My mother died after nine years of Alzheimer's. Oh, believe me, there have been times in my life when I thought resurrection bodies look pretty good. But but, you know, if we take God's word seriously, we'll start thinking that resurrection bodies look pretty good now when our bodies are still pretty healthy too. To think of the new heaven and the new earth, the home of righteousness, as not something ethereal and over there that we don't worry about, but the actual pressing goal toward which we move with. Resurrection existence and absolute holiness and perfect joy and lots of work with full responsibility and glorious singing and praise and, and eternal existence. Not, 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 not these silly little pictures of sitting around in white nightshirts on a cloud playing a harp. There's very little of that that's very biblical. But you put together all the biblical descriptions of what the glory will be still to come and we start joining the church in every generation and we say, yes, even so, come. Come. Lord Jesus. Do you want to be mature? Cultivate an eternal perspective. Cultivate it. Go and reread Revelation 4 and 5. Go and reread Revelation 21 and 22. Reread them again and again. Hide them in your heart. Memorize them. Until you're focused on an eternal perspective that gives you a maturity that transcends all the changing tides that we have here. This is how to be a mature man. What does the text say? All of us, then, who are mature, should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too, God, will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Let us pray. Grant that we may see clearly, Heavenly Father, to understand that these things are the fruit of your grace, grace for which we beg you now. For even as your word instructs us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, we are told, for it is you working in us, both to will and to do of your good pleasure. Grant that it may be so in all of our lives.